We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show, the show where theology matters and scholarship counts. My name is Caleb Hegg and with me today, of course, Rob Banhoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? It's all good. <laughs> it should be for you. God is good. That's right. Absolutely. Ruch Hashem. Um, Rob just got back from a mini personal vacation. How was it, but, but it was buddy? 30, 36 hours. 36 so hours by yourself. I had no one to talk to but myself and the Lord. <laughs> Gotta love that. Yeah, it was great. It was great. God is so good. So what you do? You, what, you uh, t- Talk I about took, it for a second. I took a bunch of books and coffee. <laughs> and I had, thankfully, I had a bunch of firewood that I could burn in the wood stove to keep warm. Mm-hmm. And napped went out to Coeur d'Alene right Coeur d'Alene yeah, this was that little cabin at Coeur d'Alene Lake um it, it was really it was pretty windy out and had a little hailstorm and everything but I persevered but who cares <laughs> you were inside right yeah yeah there was one little break of sun where I went out and sat in the sun but the wind was like too much so it didn't last long that's pretty sweet man yeah. Would you what you would you dive into? What'd you read? I had I had a couple books. I'm um one is uh Professor Beale, G.K. Beale, and Mitchell Kim, God Dwells Among Us. Any good? Yeah, I I'm I'm chewing on it. Um I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Is it scholarly or is it more like it is it is a more uh if you call lay person's uh, you know, in terms of the voice of the, the way it's written. But Dr. Beale does have a more in-depth scholarly version of the same kind of arguments. Um, so I, but this, I got a really good deal on it. And another book I'm, I'm almost finished with is James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. Mm-hmm. You Are What You Love. This is uh, Brazos Press, I think it's 2015. And? Really, really interesting. Is it now? Now talk about that for a second. Is it scholarly he, uh, or is it doctor? Oh yeah. It, it, well, he's he's an excellent scholar, and he's written. It's it it's kind of in between. He 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 has some excellent footnotes, but it's very readable. He's a really good author. Um, but the idea is, well, the title is "You Are What You Love," but he's talking about what the spiritual habits are, and the, like that there are liturgies all around us in the world. Um, there's a kind of a consumer liturgy, you know, the person who goes, you know, the mall is like a temple, right? And there's seasons that are expressed in the temp in that temple and people go and they participate in this liturgy, liturg- it's like a liturgical life. 
And then he reflects. Now he's not, he's reformed, but he um, uh, looks at liturgy and like Orthodox Christianity and other things. And he, and he tries to make arguments for why it's important to have uh, a bigger story that opens your imagination for you to enter into as part of your spiritual life. Um, and he talks about entering into the story of Israel and stuff like that, but he, he never goes far enough to say, well, wouldn't that mean like keeping Shabbat and these days, you know, it's, he comes just short of that. So the, he, but he's got a lot of really good practical points. I just think he, he, he's looking to find the solution in, in the Christian liturgical year, you know, Christmas, Easter, and Mm -hmm. beautifying those as this, you know, really compelling spiritual story to enter into. Um, So the, the, framework, kind of the scholarly perspective of the importance of, uh, of discerning that we have liturgies all around us, you know, advertising, you you lack something, you, and we have the solution. That's kind of like a theology, like I'm, I'm broken, I'm in need, so I'm going to go to the shop, because, and then I'm going to find some sort of solution to that my... That chocolate will fix everything. Exactly. So he says, you know, we can't just pretend that we're, there's neutral zone out there. There's no neutrality. You're just, you're involved in some sort of liturgy. And so he's, and I agree with that fully. And then he's using that to argue for, for followers of Yeshua to embrace ancient liturgical traditions as part of a deliberate uh, ownership over this is the story that defines who I am. And I agree with that, except that I would just say, well, you know, we can look back and see God gave good commandments. And a, and a good calendar, and that's where we're supposed to, to find our deepest roots in terms of our liturgical life. So, um, so that's, uh, that's that one. And the, uh, not, well, I've got a couple other I'm chewing on, but the other one is uh, Dr. Tilling. Ah, oh, yes, we talked Paul's, about that a couple weeks ago. Yeah, Paul's Divine Christology. I'm really excited. I, I've, this is my second, when I first got it, I dove in. This was my second. I spent most of the time with this book. Uh, Dynamite I, book. Yeah, I've got a lot of exclamation points and yes and good <laughs> and, uh, underlines and stuff like that. I like to interact with my books. I, I like to mark books. I, that's my way of interacting. With I do ideas. too, but I've I've learned a very valuable lesson with marking my books. What's that? Use pencil. Oh yeah, I use pencil. Yeah, yeah. I got I, I have several <laughs> I have several mechanical pencils now that I that I keep on hand at all times. <laughs> you know what's funny? I interact with. Here's the value. Because I like to, I, I, I like to hold on to books that sure. I like that I value. Like I, I've had books where I go back and I'll read a book that I read ten years ago and I'll be flipping through it and I'll see a comment and I go, oh, <laughs> erase, erase. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, like so, I'm, I'm even interacting with like an older version of myself. Nice when I read and and I think that's, I think I don't know that everybody would have that kind of style. But to me, I think it, it's helpful for engaging those ideas and chewing on them and, and then coming back and saying, wow, you know what? I've nuanced my perspective on this or that a little bit. Yeah, I've kind of been all over the place with my books uh, recently, too. And it, I think it's because of the study that I've been doing for this show. So, for instance, you know, I got this book, which, by the way, Michael Horton, I really hope that we're able to get him on the show at some point. This guy is just dynamite. Um Michael Horton wrote for Calvinism, which was a response to, and I think it's funny that on the back of this book, I know that the people listening right now can't see this, but on the back of this book, they have a little advertisement right down here for uh, also, 
against Calvinism. Also available against <laughs> Calvinism by Olson. That's, that's Zondervan for you. Yeah, that is Zondervan for you. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> so I've I've been reading this, but then I I've uh, also been looking at several uh, articles, and then I found uh, a new download uh, for in accordance that just came out in April, which is Olson's Arminian Theology. Now that's that's the same guy who wrote against Calvinism. Okay, and uh, I don't know who this is published by, but uh, I started halfway through the book because I wanted to read a specific section of this book. We'll we'll reference that a little bit later, and then of course, uh, you know, for the for the study purposes, I've also had to keep on on hand the five points of Calvinism defined, defended, and documented, uh, just because this is like the reference book of all ref- reference books. And actually, um, I have uh, <clears throat> I have this is the uh, new new edition. So it's about twice as large mm. as the old one, which is, which is, I haven't even gotten to the new stuff yet. Uh, and they added another, they added a, a person. So now instead of just two people, Steele and Thomas, now you have S Lance Quinn also on there as well. And then of course at home, uh, Paul and the Trinity is what I'm still, I'm still working through so very slowly, a couple of pages a night. I'm only reading like three or four pages a night. Uh, but so it'll take me, you know, a year to read a hundred page book. Uh, anyway. All right. Well, yeah. Welcome everybody to the Robin Caleb show. Uh, want to say hello to everyone. What up in Shalom and a uh, big thank you to Gary Springer, our programmer who programs all of the music and all the stuff going on on Torah resource radio 24, seven, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And of course our, uh, chat room and everything is all to the efforts of Mark Randall, a big thank you to Mark Randall for hey. keeping all that going. We appreciate it. And a big thank you to everybody in the chat room because we love having a good conversation in the chat room. It looks like we got a pretty good good crowd in there. Uh, small, but uh, all of the theological minds that we would hope would be in our chat room are certainly there. And actually, someone in our chat room that we always enjoy having, Robert. Robert uh, has been the token Armenian. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if he would actually uh, uh, hold to that label, but he's he's definitely uh, challenged us in the chat room, which has been very good. He wrote me an email this morning, and uh, he asked this question. And you now, Rob and I discussed this two days ago. We said we weren't even going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. But since Robert uh, wrote in, I figured that we'd just address his email quickly. Uh, It says, uh, I know that you all have discussed homosexuality on past shows, and I agree with your stance. I don't remember the details, though, about Leviticus 2013. What do you do with that verse? In light of the recent tragedy in Orlando, Florida, I argue that our God is a God of life, and yet this verse. Uh, And so let's go to that verse very quickly. In Leviticus 2013, I'm reading out of the ESV, if it it says, if a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Well, okay. I, I, first of all, I think it's important to say that uh, I think the Orlando events were just that a tragedy. I, I think that uh, I think that it's not scriptural what happened uh, in or- Orlando by any stretch of the imagination. It's not the Torah does not give any person the ability to walk into a place and take uh, judgment, uh, be judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, all of those into their own hands. Uh, that's not the way that the Torah is laid out. We have judges, we have uh, a specific civil system uh, that 
that has been set up by the Lord within the Torah. So even people who are Torah observant, and I know that we might, as Torah observant believers, we might get more flack from people saying, oh, you hold to these old ancient, uh, you know, oh, why are you saying that every homosexual should be put to death? Well, there's several aspects of this as well. Since we're not in the land and since there's no temple and since we live under a government that does not recognize homosexuality as a, uh, a, a death penalty crime, then these things cannot be enforced and should not be enforced by believers. We see this even through uh, the the witness and example of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, certainly had the ability, if he wanted to, to fight Rome and the uh, disgusting, perverted things that were going on in the pagan temples. Uh, but he didn't, did he? He, he, uh, he came for a different reason that time, and uh, he didn't rise up to fight, and uh, he didn't allow other people to rise up and fight. So uh, he lived within the society that uh, he was in. And even if we wanted to do something about, uh, say, uh, uh, you know, homosexuality or uh, other sins that are just as spoken against in the scriptures, like uh, adultery, right, or fornication, uh, sexual relations outside of marriage, those kind of things are all spoken against, uh, I believe, with death penalties, right? I think all of those have death penalties, yet uh, we see the, the extreme Christianity that is, you know, and we've seen some of this from uh, like Stephen Anderson, uh, Westboro Baptist Church, uh, and other pastors. There's another pastor down in Sacramento who uh, basically said he thought it was great what happened in, in Orlando and these kind of things. Well, I have to reject that outright obviously, because that's not the way that the scripture tells us to go about things. Uh, and not only that, but if, if these people are so outraged about the homosexuals uh, within the United States, what about the people in your church who are fornicating or the people in your church who are in adulterous relationships? Uh, you know, we don't see the outrage and the, and the outcry from the extreme Christian uh, right that we do against homosexuality. So, um, you know, it, it makes no sense to me that, that you would have Christians come out so strongly against homosexuality, uh, homosexuals and say that they're so, you know, that, that somehow a mass shooting is a uh, God-sanctioned thing, but not come out against the people in their own communities or in e even other church communities that are uh, living in sin. It, it makes zero sense to me. No, I would say that according to Leviticus, if we read the entire, uh, the entire passage and, and the entire Torah as a whole, the Lord has set up a specific way that we have to go about things. That is that the government, first of all, has to be a godly government to instate uh, these kind of laws that are upheld in Torah, first of all. Second of all, uh, once the, the government has uh, been set up correctly, then there's a judicial system that has to be followed. A person cannot just go in and take a person's life because they believe that person has sinned. No, they have to take them before the righteous judges. The righteous judges then have to make judgment, determine the case, and then they have to exact judgment upon a person. And then that judgment has to be carried out a specific way. Uh, so none of these steps were followed, which and, and not only that, but and they can't be, and they can't be so exactly. God took God took that away from the world. He took the temple. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's it's it's just it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. 
Now, I, I think that it's okay to say that we think that uh, things like homosexuality or adultery or fornication are wrong, and that obviously the Lord speaks against them. And when the Messiah comes uh, and reigns from Jerusalem, it will be up to him to enact the uh, laws of Torah. And how he carries those out uh, will be obviously up to him and his reign. Um, so uh, when that time comes, I obviously will submit, as I believe the rest of the world will, to what he is, uh, what he is accomplishing in the temple. Um, but until that time comes, no, I think that things like this are absolutely, we should, we should fight against these things because they're against Torah. Nowhere in Torah does it say to go out and everyone who wants to take, uh, take matters into their own hands and execute judgment. That is simply not the way the Torah has been set up. Any other thoughts on that, Rob? My only thought is just the end of Ecclesiastes, the end of Kohelet. Fear God and keep his commandments. Yeah. That's, that's all we can say. That's the goal of every human Re being. Repent. Yeah. yeah, repent and believe. And, and that's true for any... That's true for all of us. It, it, it doesn't matter what the sin is. Um, that what, What's important is that there is restitution. There is reconciliation through Messiah Yeshua, through what he did, what he paid. And, uh, and through evangelism, I think that we need to try to, you know, people might hate us for... Uh, for trying to evangelize, but at the same time, we should, through love, attempt to uh, sh spread the the truth of the Messiah Yeshua to everyone, whether it's, uh, you know, people who are in a church but seem to have lost their way, or whether it's, uh, you know, fornicators, homosexuals, drunkards, it doesn't matter. Uh, we should attempt to share the gospel with everyone, and we should do it through love, not hate. First and foremost, what what uh, homosexual relationships and you know these are the the further we go with society. I have many friends now that I grew up with who have uh, who are living in sin in homosexual lives or uh, you know uh, unrighteous lives altogether. And uh, and so it affects us because we see friends who are going down these roads. Um, and I think that it's important that we stand firm. It should, but at the same time, it should grieve us before anger comes. It should grieve us. That's the point. Is that we should we should want to uphold what the Word of God says in terms of righteousness. Okay, uh, let's turn to some comments that we've had on the past few shows. For those who haven't tuned in with us recently, we've been talking about the doctrines of grace, and uh, some might want to call that reform theology. I would, at this point, have to reject such a label simply because we haven't di we haven't dived into uh, reform theology and all of its all of its uh, added <laughs> theological bonuses. I don't know what you want to say. Uh, it seems like there's some supersessionism uh, that goes along. Either that or or uh, dispensationalism seems to be rampant within uh, Reformed theology, not all the time. And actually, oh, I had one more email. I want to check this out. Um, so Dennis, who's in the chat room right now, he sent me uh, a an email yesterday. He said, uh, now I had uh, dinner with Dennis on Friday night. It was, it was a really blessed time. 
And man, can his wife cook. Oh, my word. She makes Thai food like you wouldn't believe. I, I had so she gave us uh, she gave us leftovers and she gave my parents leftovers because she made so much food. <laughs> and uh, so I had her I had her her dinner on Friday night. I had it for lunch on Shabbat, <laughs> and then I had it for breakfast and lunch on on wow. on Monday, it, and and I could eat it all the time. It was so it's so good. Oh my word, it's so good. Anyway, we were talking about uh, this word evangel uh, evangelical. Okay, so uh, this word evangelical, and he had brought up that in Ariel Berkowitz's class. Now Dennis Fabe is a uh, is a student at Torah Resource Institute. And uh, he's taking classes with me uh, from Ariel Berkowitz. So he had brought up that Ariel had defined this term in his second, uh, his second quarter of church history. Uh, he says this from Ariel's study in Christianity Part 2. I found it at about 25 minutes into that week's teaching uh, in Section F, Gains of Liberalism from the Notes quote, this is from Ariel Berkowitz now, until about 1865, most Protestants in Europe and North America clung to the basic ideas of the Reformation creeds. What emerged as evan evangelicalism during that period was basically the result of the Holy Spirit moving amidst such things as Puritanism and the Great Awakenings. These theological ideas were standard among most Christians during that period. They are, one, divine inspiration of the Bible, two, the divinity uh, the divinity, the virgin birth, sacrificial atonement, and second coming of Yeshua, and three, the necessity for a new birth by faith through God's grace. I thought it interesting while listening to the discussion on the Robin Caleb show. So, uh, so excellent point. Yeah, yeah. So when we th talk about labels, I think one of the good labels that still is still around is evangelical. I I would consider myself an evangelical. I hold certainly to those three points. So if nothing else, I can call myself an evangelical. If you want to drop the Christian from the, and I know Miguel from, uh, he's a guy who comments on our YouTube page, my YouTube page all the time. And I, and I enjoy his, uh, his, his sharpening because he usually disagrees with us on most things. And I have another comment from him actually that we'll, we'll touch on in a few minutes. But he said that I'm very into labels. Actually, I'm not very into labels. However, labels do help define certain aspects of things. And what I've tra been trying to say is that we need to move away from certain labels. And that's, uh, you know, that's been the idea of Christianity, quote unquote, Christianity, or Messianic Judaism or Messianic faith. These labels, do they really uh, capture the essence and, and the theology of what we believe? And I've said no, not necessarily. Okay, so thank you, Dennis, for that email. It was a good email. So, uh, so now on to some emails. That we, should I open the? No, let's not do it. Uh, I don't even. I don't even think I have that that clip anymore on my. I made a new soundboard because my old soundboard broke, and that's one of the problems that we were having last week. So anyway, on the new soundboard, uh, I left off our mail time sound clip. I apologize. We're slacking. It's mail time. The mail is here. There. Uh, okay. Thank you. Yes. So uh, this from a gentleman named Thomas. He says my. Uh, he says superb discussion. He's talking about last week. Once again, last week we were looking at uh, the doctrines of grace. We touched specifically on the first doctrine, which was uh, now the Arminian doctrine was free will or human ability. The uh, doctrine of grace, however, is total inability or total depravity. 
This is the T in the acronym TULIP, T for total depravity. Okay, so that's what we talked about. He says, my issue here isn't that man is depraved, which is an obvious truth. My attention is more on the totality of this doctrine. I think it uh, I think it necessitates a lesser view of the whole of scripture to uphold that man is incapable of good or rejection of sin at this core, at his core, both in the Pharaoh Israel discussion alluded to in the show, but even to a further extent directly following the fall with the Lord's discussion with Cain. By his very word, he upholds that man, Cain at least, has power over sin and that man chooses sin over the pronounced warning. Sin overtakes man because man is weak in adhering to the word given, which lines up with the Pauline framework of sin and law in Romans. You want to comment first? So the idea is, the com what I'm hearing, I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting this person's uh, comment, but what I'm hearing them say is that when God gives a command, that implies the person has the ability to do it. Yes, and I think he's taking that from that from Cain and the Cain and Abel story. And implies uh, ability. Here's 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 one problem. One problem is um, we know that command does not always imply ability. I mean, especially when you're in a situation to, if we're going to use the righteous as healthy and the, the sinners as sick scenario, a doctor who says, okay, you know, bend over and touch your toes, stretch down and touch your toes, and he's like, oh, I, I can get halfway. I can't do it. I can't do what the doctors said to do. And then what I do is I see what he does. The doctor sees the gap, and I see the gap. And then we have a measure. We have some sort of... Uh, sense of uh, of where the standard is and where I am, and they're not in the same place. So one function of a command is to expose that gap. Here, here's the other problem that we have. How come throughout? How come in history everybody sins? If man has the ability to to obey God. Why does the Bible, why, why don't we have a bunch of history? Why isn't the history different? Why don't we read a, why doesn't our Bible just have a history of people who are all obeying God? <laughs> I, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and then we have this. Oh, and why does, by, why, why are they called slaves? Why are they called slaves to sin? A slave doesn't own. If slave means slave, then how does? Then how do I think of it as well? I'm not really a slave. A slave doesn't own their own self. They don't own their own time. They don't own their own uh, anything. Okay, let's go to the scripture specifically. Um, so this is. I, I would, I would question how uh, this gentleman would then interpret this. In Romans 3, 9, he, uh, Paul tells us, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is a, an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What's Paul trying to say if, I mean, you know, the, the idea, and especially we can talk about the new perspective in a few seconds. In fact, we have a whole article that we can look at, but, you know, within the new perspective, the, the, one of the ideas, uh, at least of one of the new perspectives, <laughs> is, that, uh, is that people within Paul's time believed, just as they do today, if you're born Jewish, you're already in. There's ways to get out out. When I say in, I mean saved or what, you know, we can bring all sorts of terminology into it, but you're a covenant member if you're born with Jewish blood. If you're not born with Jewish blood, what do you have to do according to modern Judaism and Judaism, we think some Judaisms or Judaisms of the, of the first century, there was some kind of way of becoming on the in crowd, at least with some of the Judaisms. Would you agree with that, Rob? Um, but let's go now to Romans 9, because this is where the idea of uh, Cain and Abel, Paul talks about this specifically, right? I don't know what's up with my accordance. Um, hang on just a sec. Should we, let me find it real quick. I should have been more. What are you looking for? Romans 9 in the Cain and Abel passage. Now there's the audio clip he has ready. <laughs> Romans 9, I don't think he talks about Cain and Abel. He talks about Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, that's what I was looking for. Uh, but yeah. Okay, go ahead, yeah. No, no, go for it. I mean, he... Well, he the, the Arminian position is going to read Romans 9 as corporate. But the, I don't see... Okay, and we In other talk, words, that, we talked about that a little bit last week. That In other words, when he says... Uh, um, let's see, I'm in Romans 9 here. Yeah, I'm looking at 14. He says, what shall we say then? Yeah, is Jacob I have loved, Esai hate. He quotes Malachi. And what the Armenian is going to say, yeah, he, what Jacob means like Israel. He chose the nation of Israel, and he rejected the nation of the Edomites. That he's not talking about individual, unconditional election or rejection here. But don't They're, you think that's a stretch within hermeneutics? Yeah, because especially when you go to verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Well, and he's but, talking about Moses in this, uh, specifically about Moses and Pharaoh, individuals. Right. And You're those are singular. In other words, when it says, I will have mercy on the one I will have mercy, that's those are singular people. Uh, and so anyway, I was just throwing out there, that's one response you might hear from an Arminian. Is that oh, it's talking about like elections of groups of people, not individual to salvation. Okay, so we talked for just a second about corporate um, 
these being corporate labels, okay? And actually, I was gonna do this later, but let's just go there now. So in your show notes, the, you can find this link too. I found this article, and this by, um, let's see here. Who wrote this? I don't even know. However, this is on Society of Evangelical Arminians. Um, and this was posted on January 30th, 2013. It's called A New Perspective on Ephesians 1 and 2. I'm going to read some of this because I find this interesting and I'd like you to interact with it. Um, so he says, the new perspective on Paul's, Paul is generally associated with the reinterpretation of Romans and Galatians in as much as these two books have been mostly closely associated with the old perspective. And we've talked a little bit about this. We've talked a lot about this. Okay, so I'm going to skip. The message of the gospel available to anyone who believes was a direct threat to the, uh, to the special status that Israel had held as the chosen people. Okay, so um, then down below, he's going to say Ephesians is quite clearly about much uh, the same issue, although not directed against Jewish op opposition of Judaizers, but written to Gentile believers to assure them of their full inclusion with Jew Jewish believers in the new covenant. Ephesians 2, uh, 2 11 through 321, which forms the heart of the book, are quite explicit explicitly about this issue. The mystery of Christ, which is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. However, in traditional Reformed interpretation, chapter 1 and 2 are re read as though they had nothing to do with the Jew-Gentile problem and instead read th uh, through... I think it's supposed to be through... Uh, oh, though they are a, a treaty on individual election. So in other words, what he's saying is Romans 2 and uh, like 2.11 through 3.21 is corporate. But Romans... But traditionally, Romans 1... 1 through 2.10 are read as individual. So then he goes into, uh, well, I'll read maybe one or two more paragraphs. He says, the key to understanding Ephesians 1 and 2 is to identify whom Paul means by you and by us and we. For example, when he states, he chose us, he predestined us in 1, 4, and 5. What does exactly constitute us? How does the context define us what are the defining characteristics of the group of people to whom Paul is referring? So basically, what this gentleman, I think it's a gentleman, maybe it's not, maybe it's a, what this person is uh, is arguing here is that Ephesians should, uh, should be read in a corporate light. What do you think? And actually, should we read some of this? Well, I, I think what, my understanding is of the article is this. He's saying, look, there's been a bunch of reform uh, theologians who have taught about Ephesians 1, and all they hammer is unconditional individual election. And they use Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 pardon me, to back it up. What he's saying is, you know, with, with the development of the new perspective on Paul, which is not a single thing, there's a lot of new ways to think about Paul, but the general idea as well is try to understand Paul from his own time frame, this was uh, a time where there were it was popularly understood that Israel was God's elect and that they were in just by virtue of ethnicity or being physical offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that the Gentiles felt like they uh, they had no place. What Paul's doing is he's saying, "No, look, Israel, God chose Israel, but also He's chosen the nations of the world also to be uh, heirs." And so. 
Um, and that's what this person's trying to say. And if we if we go back and say that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians one, is just encouraging Gentiles that that they too are being elected from God, and that they're not excluded. Um, if that's what Paul's point is, then Paul's we can get there without having to insist that Paul is demanding to teach at this point unconditional individual election. So, That's how I'm reading his article. Yeah. He, he at the end of this, I'm not trying to cut you off because I want you to keep going because I, I see where you're going to go with this. But <clears throat> at the end, I, let's read his, his, this person's final uh, paragraph here. Um, he says, uh, although this understanding can still be, be fit into the reformed framework, it does not require the reformed understanding of unconditional individual election. Gentile believers are being reassured that they are just as much chosen as Jewish believers had been because God's choice is not based on whether they are Jews or Gentiles, but rather upon faith in Christ as the only necessary criterion. What do you think? Say it again. I was typing. You're fine. What do you think? I mean, what do you, you've read this article. What do you think? Well, of I the, think I, I, well, what I, you saw my original response was yes but our to, listeners have not heard your original okay, response well, what i did and i as for fun i'll do it again i just we just take like ephesians one and if we're going to read okay this is not this is just corporate election paul's not telling any one person that they are in <laughs> i i kind of made a a i guess a caricature someone said it's like paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god at least i at least i believe I'm pretty sure that I've been called to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, not to any of you individually that any, any of, I can't assure any individuals among you are saved, but just generally grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and then like verse three, who has blessed us in Christ. Well, not us, well, just us generally, but maybe not each one of us because I'm not sure, you know, I was trying to try that on. It's like, well, what would that mean? It undermines the confidence of everything Paul is communicating. Like well, he's, it, it also he, it also undermines uh, chapter three because he does talk with him with him individual personal pronouns within three. He's talking and he addresses two saints who are faithful to faithful saints. What does that mean? That's verse one. That's the that's the P perseverance of the saints. In other words. Genuine faith perseveres. That's, that's who Paul's writing to. Paul's writing the audience are people who are, have new life in the spirit of the resurrected Messiah, Yeshua, and are reckoned before the creator of heaven and earth as just, as righteous, even though they haven't even died yet in, in terms of their See, but here's, here's, the, here's the thing. Uh, if you're going to accept... If you're going to accept uh, uh, Paul speaking to individuals here in Ephesians, then Arminian theology basically is crushed. You have to take this as corporate. I would think, I don't see how, now maybe I'm wrong and maybe maybe uh, some of our friends, because look, let's be honest, I think that uh, Rob and I are probably in the minority here when it comes to the people that listen to this show and our view of, of the doctrines of grace. 
uh, and we realize we're in the in the in the minority. So maybe some of our friends who disagree with us on this on this subject can tell us if if you aren't taking it as corporate. I mean, I would assume that anyone who holds to Armenian theology would have to uh, take Ephesians one as corporate. If you don't, I don't understand how this doesn't crush the the, the theological uh, mindset of of the doctrine of Arminianism. Starting in verse three, he says, "Blessed be the God." And the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the in the beloved, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the, as a plan. Well, I mean, once again, every single piece of this seems to have uh, the doctrines of grace sprinkled all through it as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. He goes on. I mean, just keep reading. You know, he talks about inheritance, all these things. So, and, and then once again, down in 15, he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. It doesn't seem like he's talking about, you know, right here, it seems like he's talking to individuals. Right? So I, I don't understand how... Um, we would ha how we'd get away from the doctrines of grace, uh, reading Paul, Paul in Ephesians 1, if you weren't going to take it corporate, corporately. However, it, does, it seems to me like it's a stretch to try to say that this is a corporate view or that Paul's talking to a corporate entity here. Especially when you get into three and he's, he, he is, you know, keep in mind, chapters weren't here. So he's, you know, he's, this is one long letter and he seems to be talking to individuals, heirs to the, you know, to the promise. Yeah, I think that uh, here, I mean, another way we could explore this is Paul, um, he, a lot of times he knows who, he knows the people he's, the main audience of the people he's writing to. It'd be like, Caleb, if you wrote me a letter and you're addressing me or my family or something, you know, that these letters are connecting people. With Romans, he hasn't met people yet, except they, they have people in common, because oh, there's a whole chapter in Romans where he's saying, greet, you know, these people, and so on. So there's a network of believers, uh, and they, they know who they are. Now, um, we, in Romans 11, he does bring up the, the tree. We have the image of the tree with branches that are broken off, that can be grafted back in again, right? And he's talking about it's by faith that we are part of this tree. And so if someone at, at any snapshot in time 
there's a branch that's broken off. We can't, that's not necessarily the final judgment. God is the final judge because he can put those, uh, those branches back on. Okay, so I want to I want to read uh, Robert's comment here in the in the chat room. He says, "I would say I don't speak for Arminianism, but I would say that God wants all to be saved, and His ultimate plan was for just just that. He called predestined all to be saved, but not not all called accepted the call. But that's not what the Scripture says, is it? Whom He foreknew, He called, and whom He called." Or who, yeah, that's, that's who, Romans again, yeah. Okay, and then also we have uh, we have in Romans nine. Uh, it seems as though Paul says exactly the opposite. What shall we say then? This I'm in verse fourteen. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for whom he resists, who resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from this same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Okay, here, here's, here's one possible way uh, to maybe think of this. From our perspective, from our limited human, each one of us as individuals, disciples of Yeshua, from our perspective, we are to operate that God wills that everybody we meet would be saved. We have what we can't because we can't judge otherwise. Yeah, it's not for me to judge. I can't. I can't. Uh, I, I can't imagine myself or uh, uh, presume upon myself that I am a judge of other people's souls. That I determine whether or not someone uh, is with the Lord forever or absence forever. That's <laughs> that's Yeshua's job. He's been given all authority in heaven and earth to to execute. That and we know that his just uh, his judgment will be pure, and uh, he knows all the facts, and it will be a righteous and according with God's holy and just and merciful character. Uh, so, from an operations perspective of the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight, go make disciples of all nations. Our assumption is that people are going to be receptive. That's that's our operating perspective. However. That does not does not mean that. Therefore, just because we're supposed to always hope and be and pray for people and to not judge those branches that look like they're broken off, hoping that God will bring them back in by faith, um, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. When in fact we know that not everybody's going to be saved. So. So I think that, that the, there might be people feeling like 
I've heard, you know, well, you're, that's a mean God. You know, God wants everybody to be saved. We don't, we are to act as if everybody is, is uh, a candidate for salvation. Right? That's because we can't, we don't know otherwise. We have no means to judge someone's heart. I want to uh, I want to move on to a couple other comments here. Uh, Romans nine I, I think is the stickler for me in in, in all this. But uh, okay, so let's move on real quick to another comment. This this from someone uh, I don't know if I'm getting this guy's name right. Cosmin, C O S M I N. He says, "Quote: God is sovereign and chooses who He likes, but the Scriptures also teach that we can choose equals free will, meaning I am not obligated by God to do His will or to not do His will." Of course, with the, by the way, I should say real quick, thank you. I, I think that uh, Robert's comment in the chat room that we read, and then I responded with Romans 9, I think Robert's comment actually would probably represent a majority of people uh, who, uh, whom, uh, you know, who are our friends and, and uh, <laughs> you know, the, the people that, that are listening to this show. I think that Robert's comment probably uh, actually represents a, a significant portion of of the people that would that would uh, that we know and, and interact with. Okay, let's keep going with this person's comment though. Of course, with the exception, when God does, uh, I, I'm not sure if language uh, English is this gentleman's first language. Uh, with okay, so I, I'm trying to smooth this out. Of course, with the exception, when God does force someone to do something like Jonah to go preach in Nineveh and others. These exceptions are just exceptions because the will of God is that none should perish, but all should turn in repentance. Yet he does not force everybody in his will, but uh, makes the way and gives the invitation. He made it possible for us to listen to his voice and follow the good shepherd. Deuteronomy thirty nineteen and other texts clearly teach us this, by free will, I mean to choose what we can choose. That's not what was the, the ver what was the verse again? Deuteronomy thirty nineteen. Okay, that so yeah, choose. So again, we have this idea that the command to 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 do something implies that the person commanded has full ability to even hear the command, let alone respond to it. So that what what I hear posited again and again is a, a like a perfect human, a perfect human who can fully hear and understand what God wants and then fully choose freely to obey or disobey. That, yeah, yeah, and, and, that, and that there's no corruption. There's but, no and that's, fact that, he, yeah, I, that, he, that, I'm, that I'm enslaved to all sorts of habits, to um, all sorts of uh, conflicting desires and all these things, but yet I still have this, this pristine capacity to hear a commandment of God in all its truth and all its holiness and purity and choose to obey or, or disobey, well, and, and that it's all my choice. Yeah, I, I just don't see that in the Bible. Un unencumbered will is basically what That's he's what saying. That's what they mean by free will, yeah. And this is what he means by free will. He states it right here. He says, by free will, I mean to choose what we can choose. We can't choose. Okay, let, let's go. Let's. This is for. Uh, this is from for Calvinism. This is on page thirty-nine. 
he states, Calvin's point is crucial. When he, like Luther, speaks of the bondage of the will, it is in relation to sin, not to God's sovereignty. As created human beings, uh, uh, as created human beings were completely free to choose good or evil, truth or error, God or idols. God's freedom is not a threat to human freedom, but the very pre- uh, presupposition of the latter's existence. However, after the fall, people are bent toward unbelief and sin. The heart chooses what which that which it approves and desires. A p- person who is dead in trespasses and sins and does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14, has lost this freedom for righteousness before God. At the same time, the fall has not destroyed the will any more than it has destroyed the mind, the senses, or any other faculty. Rather, it has corrupted every faculty. Adam and Eve have had the freedom to choose immortal life, but in breaking covenant with God, they and their posterity became a race of rebels, born in corruption, guilt, and death. Reformed theology, therefore, focuses its attention squarely on the history that God's revelation interprets to us. Human nature is not determined by philosophical speculations about a higher or lower aspect, but by the historical events of the creation and the fall. It is the concrete act of covenant breaking that marks the descent of humanity into guilt and corruption. Man, I can't agree with that more. The canons of the sin out of Dort begin with the dignity of creation. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. Only after saying this did the divines assemble at Dort think it possible to add, quote, but revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and by his own free will, he forfeited these excellent gifts and in the place thereof became involved in blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious, and uh, obdurant in heart and will, and impure in his affections. So there was free will in the garden, right? And we talked about, we briefly talked about this uh, last week. Was there free will? You know, did we have, did we have free will? Well, according to the canons of Dort, which was response, right? The canons of Dort essentially was the response in the Netherlands to the Arminians who were trying to come up in the, in the 1618s and 19s to oppose this idea of, free, of, of uh, predestination or what might better be classed as the doctrines of grace. So the, the canons of Dort came forward and said, no, 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 we had free will in the garden, but we certainly did not have free will after the fall of man. And this is where we get the idea of original sin. That's what the doctrine of original sin is. Thoughts? It's all good stuff. We had just in the in the box here about a, the nature of what's the nature of a commandment. If God, if the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, and then the, the very next one is love your neighbor as yourself. And we say Yeshua teaches us those are the greatest commandments. Everything hangs on that. Is love then, Caleb? Am I obligated to love? Or do I love out of free will? 
And if I can't love out of free will, because I choose to love, then what? Then is it a fulfillment of God's word? Once In other again, words, if I do, do I fulfill the Torah by obedience to what God commands, or do I fulfill the Torah because God gave a commandment? I looked at it and I, you know, I evaluated and then I decided, you know, of my own free will, I am going to do this thing. But we keep using the, we keep using this term free will. You know, everybody on both sides uses this term free will. I think we're we're using it differently because I don't think that there is such thing as free will. There is bonded will. There's, the, there's yeah, there's will. Will that's enslaved. I have the will. I have will, but I don't have free will. When I'm born into and God determines certain things for me instantly. As a child, when I'm born, I'm instantly I instantly am, am steered one way or the other, right? I'm born to specific parents. God chooses the parents that I'm born to. He chooses the place that I'm born, the country that I'm born in, or that I'm a citizen of or raised in, the situations that I'm raised in. All these things affect my worldview. And internet access. Internet access, exactly. And the music that's played around. <laughs> I'm just. Me. I'm exaggerating. Of course. But the, but... the point is this: is each one of us, we are we are highly encumbered. I wonder. You know, it. Um... That's not free will. That's will. It, it, it's encumbered by God. God's the one who initially sets it all up. That's not free. My my will is is already uh, is already encroached upon by the surroundings that I'm in. Keep going, Rob. I'm sorry to mean to cut you off. No, I'm just saying, yeah, it's that without the Holy Spirit, who wants to do God's will as God's will uh, uh, without the Holy Spirit? Now, some people could take a commandment and make a religion of men out of it and teach people, yeah, this is, this is what God wants. <laughs> you know, just pay me the money or whatever. You know, we, we know that, that's, that that happens. But... That's why it says, that's why we needed the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? I mean, I, and and if, if we choose to obey or, or to not obey, then how is it that Paul calls himself a blasphemer, even though he was regarded as blameless in the ways of Torah? When he was keeping Torah, and why does God say in Isaiah to stop bringing your stinking sacrifices? Because doing the sacrifices without the Holy Spirit, without the blood of the Messiah, without being a slave to Christ, a slave to the Messiah himself. Here's, here's the other side that is difficult. Is And I, I don't know if we're getting too random now, if we've, if we've strayed our, our trajectory here a little bit. But the one of the areas is, and I guess this is when we get to particular atonement, I guess, which we haven't, that's going to be a while. But the idea is, did... Messiah shed his blood just so people had the option to be saved. In other words, Caleb, I'm just going to, this is, I'm pretending, this is Jesus. Caleb, I'm just going to, I'm going to die for you to have the option to be saved. Yeah, and that's I don't, what the, that's I, I don't, I'm not going to actually purchase your soul. I'm not actually redeeming your soul. What we're going to do is it's going to be on a shelf as potential for you, and then you can look at it, and then you, using your own free will, can evaluate, you know, you can look at your lifestyle and, you know, you can evaluate where you're headed in life. 
and decide whether or not you're going to avail yourself of this option that I've purchased for uh, purchased for you. So I purchased for you the option to be saved. I didn't actually purchase your soul. Okay, so what you're talking about now is number three in the Armenian in the Armenian yeah, yeah. objections. The Armenian objections number three is universal redemption of the general atonement, and that is this is how they stated it: Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved. Takes much more than uh, saved. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe in him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they, they believe, but it did not actually put away one's sins, anyone's sins. Christ's, re, uh, Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. The problem, the huge problem that I have with this statement, Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. I thought we were saved from the foundations of the world. And we get to number three. We haven't even touched on number two yet. I think we're still talking about number one because we're still talking, <laughs> which is fine. That's totally well, be, fine. Let's go back to number one. So T, total depravity or total inability. That's what we're talking about, ability what, but, and inability. And this, ta this talks directly to the, to the statement of free will, this idea of what is free will. The idea that, that we somehow ha are free to choose. But what total depravity is saying is, no, no, no. Our will is encumbered from the very beginning by the sin nature. Adam, sin nat Adam sinned, and that, put a, that basically marked all of us. Now, true Armenian theology, I believe, is going to basically have to reject. Actually, they don't. Olson, who I'm learning more, every time something's written about Arminian theology and everybody louds it as like a wonderful work. It's Olson, right? Everybody comes back to this guy Olson. Olson basically says, "Yeah, no, 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 there is there is original sin. It marked all of us. It it made us all depraved, uh, but God gave everybody enough grace to bring them back up to zero. That's what Olson states. But I once again going back to Romans nine, you know, I I I don't see how. He says that there were vessels made for wrath. Right? He says in 22, 922, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What does that mean? How, I mean, how are we supposed to take that if we're saying that you know, and what, and what is it? Uh, Proverbs, maybe Gary can uh, find that, that for me. Proverbs, is it 616 that says the, the wicked were made for the day of the Lord. Now, once again, we can't, you know, we can't bring, we can't make Holocaust from the Proverbs. I don't necessarily think it's wisdom literature, but we certainly can gain truth from it. What does it mean that the wicked were made for the day of the Lord? And maybe that's one for Gary. Maybe we should have Gary come on and tell us what, you know, because Gary's passion is the Proverbs and the Psalms. Um, and him and, and Rob have been going through Proverbs. What did you say about that when you got to that? Was that 616? Let's see it. Let me see here. My accordance is like a delayed microphone. I click on something and it takes like three seconds for it to actually do what I clicked on. Uh, Proverbs six. 
I think it's I 660. It's, no? I don't think you're talking about 616. Um, rise, poverty. Yeah, I think you're right. Somebody help me out. There's, you know, I one thing that one scripture that comes to mind is Psalm 92, which we recite on the Shabbat. Oh, 6.14. The perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. No, that's not it. Keep going. I'm sorry. There's the Jeremiah 17, you know, the heart is wicked above all. You know, who can know it? Um, Destruction. But in, in Psalm 92, it says, you know, when the when the wicked sprout like grass and the evildoers flourish, it's so that they will be destroyed forever. In other words, it that parallels what, what I understand to be in Romans 9. That it, And that's, Paul says there at the end of Romans 8 and elsewhere, who are you to, to question God? You know, who his ways are beyond finding out. Right? He says there uh, at the end of, of Romans 8, unfathomable are his ways. Hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I don't know how else to 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 break that down. I'm looking for this, guys. Hang on, just a sec. I'm looking for it. Six four. Six four. Okay. So I'm I'm still waiting for my. You, it's Proverbs 6-4. Yeah. Versus Proverbs 6 Are you sure? 4. I'm seriously my I type something and it Nope, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> Is it 16? Oh, 16-4. I'm sorry. 16-4. Oh. My oh. bad. My bad. Proverbs 16-4. 16, 16, well, four. we're not there yet. We're not in Proverbs 16 yet. <laughs> he just <laughs> he just skyped it to me. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, chat room. Thank you, Gary. Oh, man. I know there's a delay. I apologize to everyone out there listening. Okay, but the point still stands. How are we supposed to, uh, how are we supposed to take an Arminian viewpoint of that? that the wicked were made for the day of trouble. And here's the other, here's the other question to all the people out there, because we had another, uh, we had another comment, but the other question is if we have free will, if free will is unencumbered by God, will that is unencumbered by God, then why pray? And this is really what changed me from Arminian theology to, uh, to uh, the, the doctrines of grace, was J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God. He opens basically his book in the first chapter. He talks about prayer. Why are we praying? Because if I pray and I say, Lord, please save this person, if God actually answers my prayer and turns the person's will towards him, that's not free will. Shouldn't we be praying, Lord, please don't intercede with anybody's salvation. Yeah, let them choose. Lord, yeah. don't, don't, don't encumber don't their robots. will at all. Don't yeah. make robots. That's leave how them, I... leave them. No, but that would be destruction. Leave them to their own will. Could you, where? Where, 
Could you imagine? <laughs> Lord, leave them to the only the only place in the scripture you get leave them to their own will. That's leave them to destruction, right? The in other words, when you don't intercede, when to not intercede for somebody, that yeah. I, so Miguel says, uh, Miguel says, uh, how do we not, this is a comment on uh, one of our, our videos. He says, how do we not participate in our salvation when it comes up to each individual one of us, uh, when it comes, when it's up to each individual one of us to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Yeshua was raised from the dead to be saved. Yes, Yeshua did the work, but without our individual participation in the process, there is no salvation and a return to covenant with the Father. Um, so basically, I mean, the point once again is, yes, once God has given us faith, once he's given his grace to us, once he's given us grace to have our eyes opened and to allow us to turn to him, then we confess with our mouth. But that's already been, that work has already been done from the foundation of the world, right? Okay. Um, so we were going to get into you. You know, well, what we get, it, it seems like we get into this theology area where we're trying to have a theology of wickedness, a theology of evil. But the Bible doesn't really tell us a theology of evil. It tells us to fear God. What do you mean by his, that? Wait, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by well, a theology, theology of, of like, well, to try to where we go out and look at evil in the world and then we wonder, like, what can we, can we make? Con theological conclusions, or can we extrapolate theological principles of evil and where it comes from and how it got into the world and what we can do about it and stuff like that? I don't think the Bible really sets us up for that kind of uh, uh, project. I think what the Bible sets us up for is all of sin. Look at here's a history of people disobedient to God. God has every right to destroy them. God. Uh, calls men to repent and believe the gospel, and that he actually has a, uh, a solution of redemption and salvation and reconciliation through his son Yeshua, who is without sin, who gave his life, who was not guilty, um, and yet suffered unjustly, and suffered for the sins of other people, and then shares his resurrection life with uh, certain peoples out of just sheer grace and and now we are empowered to, to do the will of our Heavenly Father. That's The Bible is all about us learning to repent and believe and to obey, to fear God, to love God, and to, to seek to grow in knowledge of His will and uh, what it means to love him with all our heart, all our soul, our strength, what it means to love our neighbors, ourselves. That's what we're supposed to be occupied with. Um, it, the Bible doesn't flesh us uh, or give us a fleshed out theology of, of how God operates in the world via evil. You know, we, we just, we're not given a lot. 
So I, I hope that Robert doesn't think that we're picking on him, but he certainly is putting up a, a very, you know, he's putting up good arguments in the chat room. And so, and he's the only, he's the only one in the chat room that's putting up arguments, uh, you know, for, for a free will model. And that's fine. I'm, I'm very happy he is because it helps us, uh, it helps drive the conversation. I want to read his, his latest comment. He says, could it be that God judges them as wicked? I believe he's talking about 16.4, this Proverbs 16.4 uh, uh, passage. Could it be that God judges them as wicked in that he creates created them for good, but they choose wickedness, and then God uses the wicked for his will. And then his last statement is, does that mean that God made them wicked with no hope of redemption? No, God did not make them wicked. God made man, man uh, uh, with a free will to choose. Man, Adam, is the one as the representation. And once again, I go back to Romans. He talks about this, where is it, Romans 5? He talks about Adam being the representation of all mankind. And through his fall, we all have become wicked. We Adam all... had access to Adam and Eve had access to all these blessings of God and presumably the tree of life. And they had one commandment. Enjoy all this. That's the positive. They had a negative commandment. Don't eat from that one over there. And then it all went to the one thing that they couldn't do. And they were um, exiled, basically, from that. They no longer had access. They no longer, death entered the world, and subsequently, no one's had access to that. Look, there is, a, I'm not going to say that there's not a tension here. It, we see this with all major theology. How can Yeshua be fully God and fully man at the same time? How can the Father and Yeshua be two separate, but one eternally and fully co coexistent as one. How is that possible? We have this tension. Right. How is it possible that uh, God is sovereign king, but, he also, yeah. but also he can also judge people? Um, or, before... even, or even more so that, that he's, not, he's not responsible for our sin. That he, that you know, that he's not the one who's who's basically uh, responsible for sin, and this is exactly what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about you, you, the you in uh, in the, in tulip, which is unconditional election, and of course, this really what this what the heart of this matter is is do, does God, and we'll we'll go to Olson's Arminian theology if you want to read up before we get there next week. Then have a look at uh, Olson's Arminian theology, myth number four in his book. I believe it starts on page 98. The heart of Arminianism is belief in free will. That's a myth, according to Olson, who seems to be one of the leading voices in Ar Arminian theology. Now, I, once again, I want to thank uh, everyone in the chat room, especially our, our brother Robert. I, I hope you don't think that we're picking on you. That's certainly not uh, what we're trying to do. However, you bring up some very good points, and it's always fun to be able to interact with people in the chat room. And uh, and our brother Robert has has uh, done a very good job of, of uh, putting forward his opinions in succinct ways that are are uh, are good for us to look at and talk about. We know that uh, a lot of what Robert is saying is is the majority view of those who are listening to us. And so it's not just Robert that uh, we are are discussing with, but it's also the people like the people who sent us comments throughout this last week. And a big thank you to all those people. 
who, although strongly <laughs> disagree with us, uh, have put forward some very good comments. And we hope that more comments will come uh, even from this, from this specific show uh, and that we'll be able to interact with more of them next week. Anything you want to say before we leave there, uh, Rob? Nope. Good topic. Yeah. You know, this is not a, uh, I, I don't believe that if, if someone upholds what we call Arminian theology, that that means they're not saved. Oh, no, and I of guess, course not. And no. the reason why I could, I could say that is because I am confident in God's election <laughs> that, <laughs> that it doesn't matter. Really, you know, you could have this or that theology wrong. Um, and if you're elect, you're, you're, God will, you know, <laughs> so I don't think anybody's in danger of losing their salvation. Um, well, and actually, uh, Michael Horton in the beginning— By of his, having these, you know, discussions. Yeah, Michael Horton in the beginning of his book for uh, Calvinism, this is the very first thing that he says, is that, yes, this is a big issue. Yes, this is an important issue. However, uh, basically, in many we more words— far more, yeah. Yeah, in many, in many more words, basically what he says is this is an in-house debate. It's important because it does speak to soteriology and the nature of God, right? The God we serve. It's important to to explore and and uh, to look at, and we we certainly think that it's important to uh, to to understand. However, it certainly is not a salvation issue. That is for sure. But the, here's the okay. I I know that we've yeah. No one no one's saying oh I just I don't need Yeshua's. Uh, shed blood on my behalf yeah, because I'm just I'm unless you're into reincarnation and uh, Isaac Luria and that sort of thing. Well, here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing is that I've realized people within now I I know we're speaking to many different audiences here, but it seems like people within the Hebrew roots slash messianic realm, a lot of them have no clue about this debate in terms of they don't they've never looked into it they never studied it, and I know we've harped on them a lot, but I think Itzhak Shapira is a perfect example. You know, Itzhak Shapira put up a video, you know, responding to these Calvinists. He was meeting us. You know, he's talking directly to us in that video. It seems as though he ha he doesn't even understand. He, I think that he doesn't know at all what a Calvinist is or what the theology is, because in that video, he never once speaks to anything that has to do with the doctrines of grace. <laughs> he doesn't, I don't think he understands. I don't think he's, what? I think, yeah, I don't know what he's talking about, but it certainly had nothing to do with Calvinism or the doctrines no, but of grace. It, no, but it's like, oh, Calvinist, I did a Google and it said he was anti-Semitic. So. Yeah, exactly. Luther, so, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm That's, not, I'm not trying to harp on people in the Messianic movement. However, I think one reason that this is such a, a important topic to, to uh, look at on this show is because uh, so many, I think so many people within the, the Messianic realm, even if you disagree with us, even if you disagree, even if you think, even if you believe in, you know, an Arminian standpoint or a free will standpoint, that's fine. However, it's good to be educated so that at least you know what the, what the debate is, because it seems like some within the Messianic realm and the Hebrew roots realm try to uh, try to say that they believe one thing, but one get a couple of uh, uh, minutes into a conversation. It's pretty evident that they are unaware of what the debate even is. They haven't they haven't had to deal or wrestle with with any of the theological stances from either side. Um, and I that's exactly where I came from. I wasn't you know steeped in this stuff. I just thought, of course, we have free will. That's you know that was the mindset that I had, and that's what I tried to uphold. So I hope that uh, I hope that it's uh, beneficial to some people. All right. 
Uh, until next week, please have a blessed, uh, blessed week. Study with us if you want to. We've been reading uh, several different books. Olson's Arminian Theology is one that we've been that uh, we're looking at for Calvinism against Calvinism uh, is one that we've been looking at. Five points of Calvinism defined, defended, and documented. And one I can always recommend for sure is J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You're going to get all sorts of different views from all those books. Uh, so don't think that they all agree. Anyway, uh, the reason that we're looking at all this, simply to do one thing, to understand and to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.